0: Shoulder of Orion is brought to you by the generous support of our incredible patrons. To learn more about joining our Patreon, please visit www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support.
1: lonely.
2: I can fix that. You look like a good
1: joe.
0: Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, James Prater, and I'm joined by several hosts and several guests tonight, and I'll just have everyone go around and introduce themselves. And uh, this is our Joy Symposium episode, so hopefully it won't be too long, but it's going to be a little bit long because there's a lot to discuss. It's a roundtable of six of us, so thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for everyone for being on the show. Uh, But I'll start with tonight, we have a a couple special guests, but a guest who's never been on the show before, and Barbara. So Barbara, I don't know how to pronounce your last name, and I don't want to fuck it up so
3: <laughs> thank it's you for a, being on schmucker. the show
0: schmucker okay schmucker.
3: Like i the... like the joke.
0: okay okay so thanks everybody for being on the show so let's start off with the with our regular hosts and contributing hosts what up this
4: is patrick
1: hi this is micah
4: hey everyone i'm dan hi good to see you i'm robin i'm out here in cambridge and just so you're aware it's 2 11 a.m right <laughs> so you know feel my pain,
0: people. i feel bad i'm sorry robin i didn't realize it was this late slash early now he's hey, bragging. Pleasure. Yeah, no,
4: I just want the sympathy and the respect. That's all I want.
0: You sound really <laughs> awake, though. So I think you're a night owl, right?
4: Yeah, no, pretty much. I'm normally up about this time. I've just made myself a <laughs> cup of tea. So, you know, I'm, I'm all good.
0: Okay.
5: Well, oh, I love how stereotypically British that is, too. <laughs> uh,
0: I So we are here to discuss joy, but uh, Barbara, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit. and you, Because you are, like I said... Uh, you've never been on the show. I, you know I know you and I have connected on Facebook. We're all in the same Blade Runner groups. Uh, and I'm curious, uh, how did you fall in love with Blade Runner? When did that start for you?
3: Um, it started when I saw the ads on TV for the original Blade Runner movie, and I was like twelve or thirteen, and I was like, oh my God, I have got to see that movie. And uh, I just obsessively every time that commercial was on TV, you know i I would watch it and just, like, I was mesmerized. And um, I did finally get to watch the movie a few years later and was entranced. I mean, the storytelling, the thing is, that, uh, by that time, I had already been reading Philip K. Dick. So um, it was just a, an amazing journey for me. And I really love visual things and storytelling. And at the time, it was so unique. Um, you know, it wasn't it was it was different than than many other things that that were on you know the screen at the time, and um, over the years with the different releases and the different edits and cuts, I bought all of them. I I even own the laserdisc version of this movie, and um, then when they started you know the started talking about you know Blade Runner twenty forty nine coming out, I was like oh my god either they're gonna really bollocks this and make it a real mess or it's going to be sublime. And it ended up being sublime. And um, I missed it at the theater because when it was out, I was um, I was ill. I had um, several months of the flu, which was awesome. But I did get <laughs> to see it on Blu-ray. Um, a very good friend of mine, a very close friend, has an amazing sound system in his home. So um, I got to hear, like, the full sound, even though it wasn't in the theater. And it was just, I mean, I alternated between, like, you know, sitting silent and crying. It was just the most amazing experience.
0: That's awesome. So uh, what is it about these films? Let's talk about the first one first. Uh, 2019, what resonates with you about, and I, I, don't, I know that it's, it's it's not just an easy answer for all of us. It's very complex things from, you know, on different levels and different layers. But for you, is there something or a character or, or something that pulls you towards these films?
3: Um believe it or not there's um there's a a field of study that um it's um it's about um it's called positioning theory and it is how we are in position in relation to another person so in some situations i may be a person who's in power like over my son i'm the person in power but to my mentor and supervisor at work i'm not the person in power so to me the original Blade Runner movie was all about these power dynamics between, you know, the replicants trying to, you know, break free and have power and those who are trying to contain them and take away their power. And just these this seeking and trying to find a place and, um, you know, and a meaning to me was just amazing. And, um, of course, Roy Batty, everybody, you know, I mean the ultimate you know power struggle in this incredibly powerful character which was so amazingly portrayed Uh, I mean I know Deckard is you know kind of central but really there's so much going on around him you can't really just focus on him and say this was a a Harrison Ford movie it wasn't it was a really wonderful ensemble that was marketed as a Harrison Ford movie.
4: Fiery, the angels fell. Deep thunder rolled around their shores, burning with the fires of a Come to You not come here! Illegal!
0: Moving on to 2049, uh, does the movie, does it feel like one big story for you? Like, what was your, what, at what moment were you like, okay, they did it right? Was it like at the end? Was it, at a certain point in the middle was there a a moment that you love
3: for me it was when they started to do um the um the baseline test i have memorized it i was just enthralled when they when when we hear the beginning of the baseline tests and he's not even in the room yet you know and it's like i mean just the poetry of it. I was like, this is filmmaking done right. It can only get better from here. And it did. I was just, you know And then when and when then when of course when Joy was introduced, you know, to me that was you see all it's all about power and autonomy. And when that started to you know when when all these characters you start to see the power, you know, everybody And it's not even necessarily people trying to maintain power over each other, um, all the time, but it's also, you know, internal power. I want to, I want to be autonomous and internal to myself. So to me, it was a great continuation of a theme.
0: Thanks for sharing that. Well, uh, so I think it's probably time that we pivot towards why we're here and, uh, Joy is complex, and actually, to be honest with you, Patrick, and everyone else, I was kind of struggling, like, there's so much to talk about with her, I don't know where to begin, because I have so many different thoughts, much of, many of my thoughts I've shared, I've been challenged by, but we haven't really had a full episode to devote to her, I know, Micah, you've challenged me on some things, I've challenged you guys, um, I've come around on some things, then I've kind of gone back on some things that I believe in, or, because we don't really know, um... But lately I've been thinking, is Joy even a woman? Is she, like, what makes her female just because she looks female? Like, that's something that's been playing in my head in terms of, like, gender. Like, she she might look like a, a, a female, but is she really? And I'm curious, and I guess we can maybe just go around and start, start talking about, do we still feel the same about her uh, in terms of our discussion about her now as we did maybe four months ago?
2: And Jamie, one thing I could do really quick, it's maybe four or five points, but I went through our previous listener mails on uh, our listeners that had commented on joy. And I can throw a couple of questions out there that as we go around, people can ponder that way. If anybody needs inspiration um, on top of their own ideas, they can kind of think about that if that's okay. Awesome. Let's do it. Cool. So the first one kind of, which is perfect because it talks exactly about what you just mentioned about gender. So Gabriel Torres wrote in a while ago or actually called in about Joy's gender being a construct and not being real because you know she's a computer program so her gender is really just a projection um which makes me think is there a male version of Joy uh, and also are replicant sexualities hardwired because obviously if they're going to have a sexuality and have an attraction you would have to make that happen and make them heterosexual for example which you know builds all kinds of implications are there gay replicants is that something someone thought about so kind of interesting to think about um Dustin Tugas wrote in, which is Patrick's brother-in-law, by the way. Um, He was talking about how Joy is programmed to love Kay at all costs. And it kind of makes me think of the the tagline from the commercials of her, everything you want to see, everything you want to hear. Um, Chris from Fresno, a very old uh, voicemail that we had already mentioned, and Jamie Mack from Vancouver, who uh, calls in from time to time, kind of talked about the logical process of does it make sense that joy was going against her programming and against the corporation would a product be designed to encourage the customer to destroy or uh, destroy it or tamper with it um If so, you know, that's kind of very convincing that she became real or is transcending her programming. I think there's a question there of whether that's something that's happening that's outside of her programming parameters and whether she's kind of acting on her own and transcending her programming, or is that just part of the realism of that Wallace product? um and then lastly Jamie Mac also mentions um whether joy's humanity in terms of we talk a lot about whether replicants are human or not what it means to be human do actions define that or does your type of birth define that meaning were you born of woman or were you created and so i think we can extend that to an ai like joy which some people uh, commonly referred to as like a very advanced Siri, you know, a Siri that's a little more tangible that you can see. But her question was: Is Joy's humanity defined by her willingness to sacrifice herself? Um, which is also something we've talked about with Kay. So, just a couple things to think about. I a
0: couple wanna,
5: nice little things to think about. <laughs> yeah, I want
0: to throw <laughs> that. I want to throw that to Robin. I would like to hear your thoughts, Robin, just because I feel like we, you know, we heard from you about. Um, many, many things, but I'm really curious about your opinion on love. But I will say, before I throw it to you, there is a point, as I watch the film again and again, where Joy is right next, right after Kay has discovered the, you know, he's home, he's discovered the uh, the horse in the, you know, the, the old burnt out, uh, whatever that thing was, and he's home and uh, Joy is right next to him, right in his ear, she goes, you know you were loved like she's seducing him with her words and i'm thinking that's what that's what algorithmic technology does it seduces us this is exactly what she's doing why is she more than this and i, I there's more to that but i just kind of want to leave it there and I'll throw it to Robin
4: Oh, very interesting questions. Absolutely fascinating questions, and some of those have been playing through my mind since I got the invitation to be on this. Um, in terms of whether joy is is a human, um, I think at this point I'd want to kind of think about the Turing test, and I think the the Turing test basically works like this: um, you have you have a person. Who is sitting in a chair and they are receiving text messages, and they don't know if the text messages come from a human or if they come from some kind of AI. And the idea is that you, hopefully one day we are going to produce AI which can beat the Turing test, which that's so you can't tell it's coming from AI anymore. And I was thinking about this in the the context of Joy and in the context of Joshi. And the reason being, there's a moment in the film where Joshi sends, um, well, Joy freezes and then you get Joshi's um, voice message. And the thing that intrigued me there is that Joshi um, is using very clipped sentences. She says things like, we found the body, we need you to come in now. And just really clipped sentences, really efficient, really businesslike not very human whereas joy has been um has been using all of these kind of very f- flow all this very flowery language and i'm thinking if we're thinking about this as a turing test between joy and joshi i'm not sure which one if we're just reading those words we would think is the human and which one we would think is the ai in that situation so i think joy is an interesting artificial intelligence because she has beaten the turing test at least most of her dialogue beats it i think um As for whether, the other thing I think is that yes, it seems to me at the end of the film, what we're left with is this notion that being a human means a willingness to sacrifice yourself for something bigger than you and for others. And Joy completely does that. So I think in terms of the film's internal logic, I would say yes, Joy is a human.
0: You don't think that she could be programmed for that?
1: Mirror data makes a man. A and C and T and G. The alphabet of you. All from
0: four symbols.
1: I'm only two. One and zero.
2: Half as much, but twice as elegant,
4: sweetheart. My general feeling about Joy... Is that in order for Joy to be everything you want to hear and everything you want to see, she has to have such a sophisticated intelligence that she has to be, she has to be conscious. Um, so therefore, in order to be the perfect product, she also needs to be human. Um, so it's it's not that she's one or the other. It's that in order to be one, she has accidentally has to be both. So, yes, yeah, so the um, the Wallace Corporation, in order to make her the perfect product, has to also make her human. The Wallace Corporation is not intending to make her human. It's a byproduct of their marketing strategy, but she is nonetheless human. That's my feeling. Wow.
1: Also, going off of what, um, Dan, you were talking about earlier about her transcending her programming and, um, it, it, and, and, and going against her programming at the end and when she sacrifices herself, I, I, I personally think that it would be… Um, it, it's hard to believe that the Wallace corporation would have created something at least without like keeping, I, I don't know. I just can't see them creating something that would be able to normally, like if every joy could transcend their programming and become more and, and, and ask, she becomes so vulnerable. I'm sorry. I'm sounding so like scattered right now, but I have a lot of feelings about joy as everybody knows, but, uh, she she goes against her programming in such a way that she allows herself to become vulnerable um which solidifies her as a human in my view as well and it just it seems like the opposite of of how someone would design something to be perfect it it's it would be designed to last it would be designed to just kind of be durable and i i just don't think that she would be able to this joy seems special to me and i think in transcending her programming and sacrificing herself at the end, she does become a real girl, so to speak. I see
3: her as struggling quite a bit to get past the boundaries that have, been, that have been imposed on her, both by the fact that she's not corporeal. You know, she's just not like physical. There's no physicality to her. And she's trying to affect change in the real world. Uh, without being able to touch or feel anything, it's just all her voice and and her face and you know her the the way she looks and moves rather than um the ability to you know to to actually touch or move anything and <clears throat> she seems to me to be struggling so much to go beyond her programming, but you know and she tries to find loopholes to try to do something differently, but you know she she does succeed in some ways, and in other ways, you can just see that its it must be incredibly frustrating because she is an AI, she's intelligent, she's self-aware, but she's limited.
1: So I just, I feel great compassion for her. It's interesting also that she is very aware of those limits, um, like, right when he gives her the Emanator and, sh- and she's downloaded onto the Emanator, the first thing she does besides smile directly at K is look up at the um, the hollow projector above her. And she moves away from it. It's like her first taste of freedom. And I, I think that's one of the first truly beautiful moments that we see Joy... Um, she, she just knows her limits, which is so it's just a testimony of the programming itself, but also a testimony of the specialness of this particular joy that Kay has customized and made his own. So I, I think that moment is really important. It, it gives us a little insight as to how, how nuanced and how um, self-aware she is.
0: But don't you think, though, that and I'm not like saying this to be a contrarian or I, I, these are just really questions, these things, these these feelings that we feel about joy is could it be us anthropomorphizing? I, I always struggle say that, saying that word. Um, like we think she, we're she's human because we say she's human, not because she is. Like is is there something more to that? It, does she have her humanity because we feel that way because she looks like one of us? And she progr- she has programmed tears and she's telling you everything you want to hear, just like they said. Like how do we? How do you? Delineate between Where's that. the line? Yeah, like, how do you know it's not seduction of, of of her coding and actual joy being, like, a different kind of joy? We don't. We don't see any other joys except for there's that one scene where they're in the food court, and you see that very anime-looking joy in the tutu kind of dancing around. And that's it's Anna de Armas, but I don't know if it's supposed to be a version of joy. but And aside from the other ones, that projections that you see on the bridge... Um, she's the only real joy that we see. Um, and I just think it's interesting and I'm not saying anyone's wrong or right. Um, but I feel like it's interesting, um, that she's hitting all these emotional notes. So she must be human, you know? Um, like that's kind of where we go to, but at the same time, I think about, I made a post about Grover today and of course, Grover's a Muppet. Grover's not real, but I have an emotional connection with him, you know? so i can kind of get it
1: right and i i think we we can do the same thing with the replicants like we anthropomorphize them as well i also have trouble saying that word <laughs> but it's, it's a hard like word. right it um but they have they have tears that were created by people in the the wallace and the 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 labs you know so like we we're doing it's interesting that the line has become even more blurred with joy because yeah, she's not corporeal or anything, but she was engineered. The replicants were engineered, and yet we are finding ourselves putting humanity onto them and having all these feelings and connections with them. It's it's just interesting that we can do that both for joy and we can do that for the replicants and we can do that for Grover. I mean, I love Grover. I have a very emotional connection to yeah. a lot of Muppets on Sesame yeah. on Street. Me too. So. Me too. Totally. Yeah.
0: But isn't theres is, not nice. there a difference? I'll, go ahead, Patrick. I've spoken enough.
5: Well, no, that's okay. I'm going to kind of, but I have like a a, a kind of a out of left field way of getting into this point that I'm about to make, but it's it's going to eventually come back around. And then I'm going to give you something to refute your position, actually, Woo! or actually, no, not not to refute, rather to buttress your position and to refute the one that I always jump to. So I'm going to oh. get to that. But give me give me two minutes. So first off, I think there's something really fascinating about Joy in that she's obviously not supposed to be the centerpiece of this movie. But she's the character that everybody keeps talking about. And I think well, I think there's a reason for that that I'll get to in a second. But I just as a side note, my cousin just two hours ago, Miles, who listens to this show, told me that uh, he's got a, an appointment for a for a joy tattoo. Like, this is a character who is, like, becoming really a standout part of the Blade Runner universe. And I think the reason for that is that she presents the most interesting case for where the humanity lies in all of us and if something so clearly artificialized and something so clearly manufactured and as micah so beautifully said incorporeal as joy as a hologram as a non-physical object can convince us as robin said to uh, can pass the turing test that it really makes us question like then what the fuck is the point of a flesh and blood human even more so than a replicant because a replicant of course can pass not only a turing test but most other organic tests as well, right? Like sometimes if you didn't see the barcode, you wouldn't even necessarily know you were interacting with one. Um, you know, you might just think it was a slightly Asperger, Asperger's sort of inclined human, you know? Um, and I think that because joy is so clearly artificial, but also so clearly human in a lot of ways, it really makes us question what humanity actually is. And I have another um, little, um, when when you mentioned uh, the the Turing test Robin, I, it, it made, made me think of a thought experiment called the Chinese room experiment. Do you guys know this? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, So and so you, you'll probably be able to explain it better than I can. But the, the idea is that it's by a philosopher named, uh, I think, John Searle. And the idea is it basically comes down to input and output. So if you were to give a machine, you know, a machine that you wouldn't think of as being intelligent, a series of Chinese characters, like in the language of Chinese. Um, and it were programmed to produce text with those characters, it could spit out convincing Chinese text and pass the Turing test. And I think we can all imagine that because that's how computers work, you know, every day, right? But if you were to put John Searle, who does not speak Chinese, in a room, a closed room, with this computer, or sorry, not with this computer, rather, with a list of Chinese characters and then a guidebook for how to assemble them into meaningful, cogent language, he could realistically spit back through the door of this room convincing Chinese text that would also pass the Turing test and come across convincingly Chinese, even though he wouldn't know what he was doing. So his whole r- idea with this experiment is that you know, a computer basically boils down to an input and an output. And an output. So the idea of a strong AI, of an artificial intelligence that's able to essentially think for itself uh, is a fallacy because There's a difference between being a human and realizing you don't know something and being an artificial intelligence and not having any clue that you don't know something, but rather just assembling inputs and outputs. So that's kind of, I think, getting at what Jamie's saying. But my personal opinion on it is that we are all nothing but a series of inputs and outputs. And further, that we're all nothing but a series of accumulated, agglomerated choices that we have no control over that have led us to the particular moment in time when we react a certain way to an input or an output. And behave in a really computerized way. And I think part of what's so powerful about joy is that she makes us realize that, like we don't really have control in a lot of fundamental ways over our own humanity. You know, that we react to things as they're presented to us and because of who we are and who we've become over time, we react in certain ways that almost feel pre-programmed. And so to me, like being being a human doesn't necessarily mean acting, in contravention of inputs and outputs and programming and ones and zeros it's what you do with that and so to me part of why joy feels like a genuinely human and genuinely heroic character is because what she does with that programming whether or not she has any control over it because who the fuck knows if any of us have any control over it but what she does with it to me evinces real humanity and real warmth and real compassion in a way that i think is kind of uh Against what you would think a machine would do in terms of self-preservation and trying to preserve its own programming, that's that's my kind of thought.
4: If I can piggyback on that, I just want to say that I think Joy makes that very point in the film when she says, "Oh, well, you're made up of these four letters, and I'm just made up of two numbers." So she's kind of saying you're an organic machine, I'm a digital machine, but we're both, you know, we both have that in common. So I think Joy kind of sees it that way too.
2: Yeah, that this really. Fascinating. Sorry, Micah, go ahead.
1: I agree. I agree. I love that she she knows that she's one and zero. She actually calls it out. That That's something that just recently hit me. The fact that she knows that she is limited in a certain way in that she's doesn't have any physical presence in the world and she can't really manipulate things around her. Um, I, I think it's so fascinating that, um, I mean, she's programmed to be there for Kay. And it's just the way that she does it is so amazing because she, she builds him up by saying, you're more, you're more even than I am. You're, you're made out of all these letters and you're, you're a physical thing and you may even be extremely special in that you may be this chosen one, um, one in a million. And I think I just, it just hit me today. Like that, the fact that she knows that she is light and she knows that she is numbers and just a computer program, but she, chooses to still be Joy, J-O-Y. Like she still, she still chooses to be the way that she is for Kay. And that's part of her heroism to me. You
3: know, I think that a lot of times for me, um, it's not what we're made of, but what we do that makes us human. And Joy, with what she does, with her attempts to assist Kay, and to break free, that is fundamentally a human thing. We all strive for freedom and we all strive to achieve certain things, even if our goals are not selfish goals, even if they're selfless goals, it's part of what makes us human. And I think that really, to me, made her so human in this in this story.
0: So here's a question then. Uh, I'm sure all of you guys are familiar with Sophia she's the artificial intelligence she's got a body a face she talks she can walk now they gave her legs is she human when if she is what makes her i know this isn't about sophia but essentially i'm asking so if this is true for joy then is sophia human
2: too i'd, I'd like to yeah on this topic because it's related and this is kind of where i was going to go with it because Inherently, for a lot of things, like we don't know in terms of science fiction, like we don't know if Martians or or some aggressive extraterrestrial race is ever going to attack the Earth, right? That's something that's been depicted in movies, but that may not ever happen. However, when we're talking about artificial intelligence and things like cloning and genetics and um, creation of persons, essentially, we know where that's going. Like we basically know that joy will exist. It's highly likely we will get to a point where that will happen. It's just a matter of how long is it going to take in real time. And with how frustrated I get with Siri and want to throw my phone out the window half the time I try and use her, I would call that like a hundred years, but I'm not an expert. So, (laughs) um, but I would say it's realistic that we're going to get to that point. And so these questions that have been philosophical for a long time are becoming more and more real. Um, and I think there's an interesting distinction too. we're using the term human a lot, um, I think sometimes we use it interchangeably with person um, in the sense that it depends on how technical you want to get or whether you're talking about a legal definition of it or an emotional definition. Right. But there's a difference between a human like a homo sapiens, which we all are um, versus a person. I think whether you – if you want to say that joy is human, you're kind of using a a more metaphorical uh, version of that word I think. Whereas for me, the way I look at it is, is she a person? For example, slaves in the United States – were still biologically humans, but they were not treated as persons. In fact, they were, what were they, three-fifths of a person, I think, in in U.S. law at the time. Like there was an actual legal definition of how much of a person they were, right? So some of those things are just constructs that we decide through society, through our legal system, that obviously have a lot to do with morals and and all that. Um, But it's interesting. I think that there's a correlation between humanity and morality – um, which affects our human, you know, how humane and how human are you being towards someone else? How much empathy do you have and and how are your morals affecting your choices? Um, and also love, and I mean, L O V E like the emotion love. I think that, um, I've had a lot of conversations and read about Greek definitions of ancient Greek definitions of love where they break it down in very many different ways, um more so than we do usually in American English at least um and if you were to ask someone to describe what love is as an emotion and i've actually asked a lot of my friends and partners this question uh, in the last few years you'll get different answers and some of it is very subjective uh in terms of what i mean is subjective to their person so love is about how a relationship or how an interaction is making them feel versus for other people it's a lot more about how they're making the other person feel and then i think for a lot of us it's it's reciprocal there's a you know there's two people involved and so it's a, it's a thing that has to do with both people and, and what the interaction is i think being human is similar whereas part of feeling human and being human is whether you are being treated like a human and so it has a lot to do with external inputs towards you from other people Versus how you are feeling internally and of course a lot of it has to do with your actions and we've seen that in the first movie where there's many many instances that we've talked about it before where Roy can be depicted as acting way more human than Deckard even though Roy is a replicant and Deckard is a human ostensibly although there's obviously arguments about that um And so, yeah, I I think that it's interesting, you know, in terms of I knew the conversation was going to go towards Sophia and towards, you know, our AIs that are advanced, eventually going to get, you know, citizenship and have human rights and things like that. Um, And it made me think of uh, those pets that they've made for like old folks homes that are uh, artificial cats and dogs, like lap animals, essentially, that react to being petted and they meow, they purr and they build relationships with these elderly people who maybe have lost all their friends and family and they're alone. And they have um, really improved these people's lives from, you know, videos that I've seen and little articles that I've read about it. And so in the end you, you have to ask yourself like to that person in the last two, three, five years of their life, does it really matter what the source was of this artificial cat? Does it matter whether that cat was ever born or whether it's real to them? Right. It brought up all these emotions and it created love and it and it caused them to to a certain extent to take care of it. They had to wake up and go, you know, take it for a walk or pet it or whatever. Kind of like the old um, uh, Tamagotchi things. Right. We used to play with those back in the 90s and you had to feed it and water it, etc. Um, so in the end, like doesn't matter what the source of creation was for that thing and whether it's really real. A lot of it is very subjective and depends on how it's affecting you as well.
1: Such an interesting point. I agree like a hundred percent with that, Dan. Well said.
4: But the question still remains, is Sophia human? My response to that would be to say, does Sophia think she's human? Um, and turning it back to Joy, it strikes me that the that Joy begins... The first time you meet her, she's dressed as a 1950s housewife. And she's kind of spouting facts, like, you know, this song was released on this record label in this year. And that's not a particularly human interaction. But there's a point at which Joy says of herself, oh, now I'm a real girl. Um, so there's a moment at which Joy kind of, you know, is claiming her humanity. So I guess my answer to the Sophia question would be the point at which... Sophia could say, I am a human. That's the point at which I think perhaps we need to think of her as a human. Um, up until that point, I would probably say not. But yeah, but as and, and I say, I'd want to relate that back to Joy and her journey.
0: That's interesting, and especially in light of the the scene between Mariette and Joy, where it says the next day and Mariette has picked up the horse and she's looking at it. And you see joy, or you hear you hear it come on the the little tone, and she says, "I'm done. I'm done with you." And then Marriott, there's just this uh, almost this animosity or this whatever, what whatever, what would you call it? Um, There's just friction between. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say it's catty, but there's there's this friction between these these essentially these things that were manufactured by the Wallace Corporation, and. Mariette is looking at Joy saying, I've been inside you, there's not much there. Like, you're not real. I know you're not real. Um, and Mariette is almost robbing Joy of any, it's almost like the worst thing that you could do or say to AI, oh, you're not human. You're just a construct. And that's essentially what Mariette is doing. Um, and I'm wondering, I I, I think my, my question is, and it's, it's fascinating to me to hear people emotionally connect to Joy, because I don't. Um, and I, I'm, I'm also fascinated to know if when Joy's not on the screen, which is considerable amounts of time where scenes are in other places, are you guys thinking about Joy? Or are you thinking about what, what she's thinking or what she might be doing? I'm curious. I mean, I, I feel that way about Rachel because she's all over the movie. And she, you know, her humanity is still in question as well. Um, but does she, do you guys think about Joy when you think about Blade Runner 2049?
3: Absolutely, because I, I keep thinking of her, especially when um she um uh, pops up and he says we you were listening and she says yes. So she's there with him all the time. She's his constant companion once the, once once he has the emanator. And um, you know, I think that Kay, you know, finds comfort in that and um Joy really tries hard to be valuable to him you know um again it's it's her actions that make her human rather than what she's made of i or maybe person dan i love the way you said that yeah it's personhood it's whether or not you're you know uh, because human has all these connotations of physicality and genetics and what you're constructed of and she's constructed differently but she's no less a person than Kay is you know
0: but it still seems like she Go is ahead. because we say so and not because she says so we say so
1: but it seems to me that um part of her ulti- it it seems like she has a dream of being accepted as a person because for her to make herself mortal essentially by putting herself in the emanator and 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 making herself that vulnerable that if this one tiny little delicate thing is broken then she's just gone that's giving herself a death, essentially. Like she is, she makes herself vulnerable. And um, in that way she, she, and she says, I want to be a real girl. And doing that is going to make her this real girl. So it seems to me like she does claim that personhood for herself in that moment. You don't prefer your madam? Mm. You were listening. Maybe. You didn't like her enough to tell her the truth. 6, 10, and 21.
0: There's
2: nothing to tell.
5: How many times have you told me that story?
1: Your memory. The date carved to Penis. 6, 10, and 21. Coincidence? A dangerous coincidence.
2: I always knew you were
0: special. Maybe this is how
1: a child of woman born,
4: pushed into the world, wanted, loved. or true, I'd be
2: hunted for the rest of my life by someone just like me.
0: It's a okay case dream a little, isn't
2: it? Not if you're us. Jamie again is mentioning, well, is she just human because we say she's human, or does it matter whether she feels like a human? I think there's a 50-50 there. I think both things are important. I cannot help but find a parallel. With a conversation that we had a long time ago, uh, one of my first episodes with Evie, where one of our guests brought up the perspective of a transgender person into relating to a replicant. And I find that it's a very good parallel for this conversation, because a transgender person, in this case, for example, a transgender woman, so someone who was born biologically a man, at some point, based on their genetics, based on biology, based on their life experience, right? There, there can be arguments. It's subjective. It depends on who you're talking about. But they feel that they either are a woman, should have been born a woman, uh, whatever the case may be. But a lot of that definition depends on trying to convince the rest of society to view them that way, right? Most people most transgender, and I don't want to speak for them. I'm just speaking from kind of conversations we've, we've had with Evie. I think part of it is about how you feel internally, right? Another part of it is how society accepts you and whether society is willing to accept your view of yourself and agree and say, okay, you're right. We're going to label you as a woman on your driver's license now or on, or, um, in medical conversations, you know, there's all these other connotations that have to do with how other people view you. Um, and I think, Both things are important, not that one defines you as a human or as a woman or as a man more than the other, but from a subjective point of view, as your experience, it's kind of half of the puzzle. It's important how you view yourself, but to most people, unless you've really reached the level of Zen that is on another planet, um most people care about how their friends and family view them, how the rest of society views them. So I think both those things are a factor.
5: What I'm kind of getting fixed. I, the, the reason why I didn't say the things is because I I didn't want to derail the momentum of that point. But uh, while we took sort of a break, I'm thinking a lot of this has to do with perception, not only of ourselves and in our own personhood, which Dan, I also love that. I, I want to switch to using that as a term for, for joy, mm-hmm. but also um, the way that others perceive our actions. And so for example, like Robin was saying in the beginning, when we first encounter joy, she is this perfect fifties housewife who is completely subservient and very computerized, a very non organic feeling. Right. And then she goes through a series of transformations, right. Where her outfit changes and her affect changes. And she kind of in the span of about 20 seconds becomes very recognizably human. Right. Um, and so you can look at that and you can look at it like it's some sort of a heuristic programming decision. So like, It could be an AI solving problems. Um, It could be an AI being presented with, you know, an input saying this is not working. I'm going to switch to this stream of problem solving. That's not working. I'm going to switch to this one until Kay feels happy with her, right? You can look at it like that. And if you do, then you're looking at it like it's just a really sophisticated computer program. But you can also look at it like in the the span of that relatively brief interaction, she's sort of finding – she's sort of – Stripping layers away and revealing who she actually is, and I think we can all relate to that on a on a an actual human level or on a personhood level or an agency level, because we all go into situations like, for example, um, I was just hanging out with a couple of guys that I know through a different podcast that I'm mm-hmm. affiliated with, um, and we we met up in person for the first time, even though we've been talking for years, and I remember going into that interaction thinking I have to project a certain image of who I am or who I want to be to them because they know me as this construct online. They know the, my sense of humor. They know like my just image. They know, they know who I am. And I, and I want to fulfill that for them because I don't want to be a disappointment and have them realize that I'm not who they thought that I was. And so I went, went into it, putting on a, you know, somewhat of a mask and these guys listen to the show too. So there's, there's a little bit of reality for that. Mm-hmm. But, and then in the course of interacting for about a minute, you know, we met up in Chicago at a pizza place. And within a minute, I was myself completely normally again, and I had taken a deep breath and I'd realized who I really was. So there's there's interactions that Joy has with characters, especially with Kay in this film, that seem like either a computer program solving an issue or a human revealing itself or a person revealing itself. And one other quick thing, just just while I have a, the floor for a second, that I wanted to slip in. Um, I think, uh, it was Robin earlier who was talking about the, the scene where they're looking at the genetic, uh, you know, the, the, the pro the sequencing machine, um, and they're, they have the exchange about how, you know, she's ones and zeros and he's the four nucleobases and about how, you know, a one and a zero is is actually more elegant because it's a simpler solution to a complex problem. And I think that there's a lot in that scene that can be unpacked about the way that the, you know the writers of the film look at those characters, regardless of what they may or may not have said in interviews, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, but it's it's true that you have a replicant, right, who's engineered using the same nuclear bases that we're engineered with, which are basically four different things that, when put together in a complex string of pre-programmed order, because genetics, of course, are pre-programmed. And then Im- impacted on by carcinogens and things as you grow older and mutations. But basically, we're born with something we have no control over. We're programmed genetically because of the combination of our parents, right? And their lineages. So you have that solution to a problem. And that problem, in the case of replicants, is creating basically a convincing simulacrum of a human, right? That you can control. Um, in the case of joy, it's actually a, twice as elegant because it's using only ones and zeros, it's using only binary input and output to do in some ways an equally convincing simulacrum of a human and bypassing even just like the corporeal stage into this sort of like metaphysical thing where she's just this dancing sea of electrons in the air, you know? And I think there's something really profound about that. And and that's why, Jamie, when you ask, you know, does does Joy stay with us when the movie is over, I, I say more than any other character in 2049, she's the one that I think about because she she's the one that makes me question most deeply who I am and what I have control over and what I'm doing with my own agency and free will and or or what I think to be agency and free will but might not even be those things at all you know and I think there's a reason why this is like the third joy episode we've had because mm-hmm. she's who people always write in about and who people always want to talk about and she's somebody that we all have these really kind of interesting, shifting relationships with. Because the more we talk about her, the more, for some reason, she becomes this perfect vessel into which we can pour our own doubts about who we are and who we consider a person.
0: I think it's fascinating. I do. I I, I sit I sit here listening to you, and you know, I would say there's a, a certainly a an agreement, uh, the majority agreement that joy is a very profound character. And I'm thinking, well, why don't, why am I, why am I not connecting to joy? Um, And, you know, I think within every fandom you have people who connect to one thing or the other. It's just, we're all different. Um, But it's fascinating to hear because I don't ever think about her. I mean, I, I, you know, when there, she's on screen, I'll think about her, but she just never, if anything, i probably think more about Anna de Armas' ideas of who that character is more than I think of the character. And so it's, it's, you know, all of us, in terms of the main host, me, Patrick, and and Dan, we're we're similar people, we're kindred spirits, but on this one, we just we kind of go. You and Patrick, uh, Dan and Patrick tend to agree about this, and I, not that I disagree, but I just don't relate, um, and I think it's 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 fascinating that I don't. Not that I don't see her humanity, I just don't care. Um, I, I care about the real flesh and blood people that are in front of me, uh, like Kay, like Deckard like uh, that version of Rachel, um, and even Love, who's kind of this unwitting slave. She's almost so much like Joy, but not Joy. She's also following programming. Her Joy and Love show the most emotion in the film, um, which I think I, is I guess just, to, just to
5: follow up just quickly on that point, what, what I always find so interesting about this when you and I talk about this, and, and Dan and Micah and everybody else, is you, you tend to make a distinction between flesh and blood and incorporeality as some sort of a line of separation between the two yeah. because like the later Nexus models to my mind are engineered even more strictly than joy because like they're, they're working within such specific protocols of acceptable behavior and things like that. Like all they have that separates them from joy is the fact that they've been built
0: organically. So that's a I, big I, I separation. Interesting. Yeah. That's a big separation. Well, I the, guess I wonder why the difference you know? between someone who can, who can read you a book Um, and then kind of disappear or or someone who can tuck you in bed and lay next to you and you can feel their body warmth. That's a big difference to me.
1: I think for me, um, I definitely recognize that difference that, that flesh and blood difference that I, I think is, is so, um, poignant to you, Jamie. And I, part of what makes, I think that very thing is part of what makes joy so emotionally resonant to me because she realized that she, she realizes that she doesn't have that kind of effect on the world and so it's almost like she makes up for it with all the other tactics that she uses to showcase her love to I believe to showcase her actual love for him um, she she's constantly working beyond her programming to be there for him. and I don't know maybe I, I just that's the way I connect to her emotionally because I real i I can it's for me, it's like seeing that limitation that she has and her still being positive and, and working around it and working through it and doing everything she can to be there for him to be. And I know that that is in her programming, but for some reason, it's just incredibly resonant to me that, that she would do that and she would take every mm-hmm. single risk to be as, as much of a person as she can for Kay.
2: Yeah. And before we, I want to pass this off to uh, Barbara and Robin to get their kind of feeling on, uh, to answer Jamie's question about how, you know, they think of joy when the movie's over and scenes that she's not in. But just so I don't get lumped in exactly with Patrick's opinion, because I feel like I'm kind of in between Jamie and Patrick on this one. um, I do not think of joy when she's off screen. And I do not think of her when I think of the movie. What I do think about is I think of What Kay is thinking about joy. I always view joy through Kay's eyes because I think it's really subjective. And her character is both designed, and if she transcends that design, her life is still all about loving Kay and having Kay love her and their interaction. Her life is kind of meaningless on her own. She doesn't have desires to become a real girl so that she can be real. So she, she can go to Nicaragua and go explore the world. She doesn't have those things. She wants to be real for K. Um, and so because K the movie is very much told through the viewpoint for the most part, uh, of K, um, that's how I always think of joy. Uh, and especially the scene where, uh, the, the sex scene or the love scene with her and Mariette, where they, um, where they sink again, that, seen I very much connect with Kay and how that must be making him feel so that's kind of how I think of Joy and how she sticks with me it's all through Kay because Kay is really the character that I identify with and think about and that sits with me Um, I just wanted to clarify that real quick but um, yeah maybe uh, Barbara first and then we'll move to Robin afterwards
3: you know um, for me it's kind of the opposite maybe it's because I'm female but I really see Kay through Joy's eyes. Um, I see Joy being, she is so female to me. She does, she's she's in service. Her goals are not for herself. These are the things that, you know, uh, at my age and my generation that I was, you know, brought up to think that that's what you're supposed to do. You know, it's all about, you know, serving other people and, and being there for other people. You know, um, your autonomy should be, um, ideally put to use in service of someone else, not yourself, uh, to be selfless, um, uh, to be, you know, not to be selfish. And so all of her struggles, um, are not for herself. Her struggles are for Kay. And, um, I think one of the things that I love most about Kay is you can just see how much he loves joy, you know? Um, and by him, his recognition of her as a person elevates her uh, maybe above what, I don't know if other if other um, people who have their own versions of joy treat her the same way. And it, And I think about if they don't treat her the same way, is she the same? Does she still have that same, you know, striving to be more? Or are the other versions of her not more? I don't know, I I just see her as being so, so much, not really an ideal female, but in essence, very much a woman, a female person. So so for me, you know, having as a parent and, you know, having, you know, been in relationships and seeing the way that I, you know, have positioned myself, again, positioning theory, positioned myself in service of someone else to try to to help someone else. Watching her do that to me was just, it really made a lot of sense. And it just spoke to me. And um, I think that's why I had such an amazing connection. And I still have an amazing connection with her. And she means a lot to me. um, Almost as much as as Kay does. Voila.
1: Voila petit. I missed you, baby sweet.
0: Honey, it's beautiful.
1: Just put your feet up. Relax. Was a
0: day. It was a day.
4: Huh? It was a day.
1: Would you read to me? It'll make you feel better.
4: You hate that book.
1: I don't want to read either. Let's dance.
2: Do you want to dance? Or do you want to open your present?
1: What present?
0: Barbara, just quickly. Uh, to just in, in that same line of thinking, do you don't see? joy as being stereotypically female like they've engineered a a a female ai to be subservient to this man and to give up her life for him at all costs oh
3: absolutely like and
0: i mean and and i mean that in a negative way like she's so stereotypically, and i'm not saying she is in every scene but i give up my life for you i'll give up my life for you i'll do this i'll do this put me in here and i'll be like a real girl and i'll take me here and all these things i'm like well what what do you want and I don't, I don't see anything that Joy wants except for what K wants, and to me that robs her, at least my perception of her, of any type of personhood. If she doesn't matter, only K matters. So how that, how does that make her a person? And I'm throwing that to you, but I'm also those are things that I, I think about sometimes as well.
3: Yeah, that's a good point because um, I don't think that it's necessarily a positive thing, and that's why I mentioned my generation. Because um, you know, younger women, millennials, uh, have a lot more autonomy and are more comfortable with it than women of my age. So um, um, I think that I yeah, you're, you know, it's really kind of a strange thing for me because on the one hand, I understand um, the way joy is. and, and on the other hand, I feel bad for her because she's that way. You know, she, her, her elevation to personhood through Kay's recognition of her. um, It's almost, it's, it's, it's a real generational throwback, you know? And I think maybe that's why when we first see her, she's in the fifties housewife uniform, you know? I mean, Maybe it's an indication from the storytellers, the people who produced the film and and put this amazing work of art all together, were kind of indicating to us in a very visual way her role in this film. I don't know.
1: Could I just respond really quickly to that, Jamie? Sure. Um, And I'll pass (laughs) it off. Um, So I think this is part. This is this is definitely like just me. But um, you said how it, it 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 does tend to come off as a stereotypical and in a negative way, um, viewing of a sort of essentially female role. And I know I've said this on other episodes before, but that is how I was prepared to see joy. I was ready for that. I, that's what I thought I was going to get from this character, but, um, after seeing the movie and still subsequently, and maybe this is the reason why I do think about her when she's not on screen, not to say briefly that, that she doesn't take over my thoughts. I'm still following Kay and I'm following the story, but she's definitely like a presence for me. Um, what is different about and why, I don't know, maybe why I can tend to put this into a positive light is because I think that I personally just relate to the, I, I just think that it, it is how she shows her love. And I don't don't know why it doesn't hit my stereotype buzzer the wrong way. Like most other films with characters similar to joy have but i do believe that she does have ambitions and dreams and i think that they are k and maybe that is a little sexist or maybe that is a negative stereotyping of this character but i don't know i for some reason their love being her goal is a beautiful thing to me like it it is beautiful that her greatest desire is is to help him and have him be happy because I, I know I can relate to not, not like, like one of my great desires is for Patrick to be happy and have what he needs. And I know that um that's not only what love is and that's just a part of it, but I just, it just comes across to me from joy that her, what makes her happy in her life is having this person with her be happy. And I think, I don't know, it just hits me in such a, It's just a way I don't know if that's the writing or it's the acting, but I think that she does have dreams and I think her dream is Kay. And for some reason, maybe it is a little stereotypical or outdated, but I don't know. It just hits me emotionally with a beautiful story. It just resonates powerfully with me. So I don't know why.
3: (laughs) I agree because um, she really she really um, wants to. uh, How can I say this? She loves him. And that and he loves her. And it's very, you know, um, organic and positive between the two of them. It's not like um, when I see love and her devotion to Nyander Wallace, it's a dangerous thing because at any moment he could decide to just dispose of her. But Kay would never, ever do that to Joy. you
1: know? Right. And I think if Joy were male, I would feel the same way. Like if she if if she was a male character or the male character, if it, or if it was a male and a female character, um I would feel the same way about their about joy's dream being Kay's happiness and being the love that they share. I would feel the same way if joy was a male or if joy was anything other than being presented as overtly stereotypically female.
4: I, th- I think the 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 two contrasting pairs. Of Joy and Kay and Narinda Wallace and, and love. I think I think they are deliberately set up as a contrast. And I think that one of the reasons that love is called love is it's it's an invitation to us, the viewers, to think about what love really means. And I guess obviously love is about two autonomous persons choosing each other. And um, and the uncertainty in love is that the idea that any either one of you could step away at any moment. And that's what makes it valuable. Um, and of course, the thing we have in Wallace's relationship with Luv is that Luv can never step away. Um, and I, I and that's what's perverse about it. And that's why it's not really love. So yes, yeah, so no. I I, I agree with I, I I agree with um with that analysis of the pairing for me joy was never the central character and she was never really the focus of my interest particularly until people started asking questions about her and then i kind of realized just how interesting she is in in, on all sorts of levels and i guess at the most basic level she introduces a new problematic category into a world where there are pre-existing problematic categories so you know the the original Blade Runner um, the two categories are kind of artificial person natural person um, and now we have this kind of artificial intelligence person as well so this third category and that raises all the same questions again and we have to think through all the answers again there's just one other thing I, I wanted to say and this is kind of coming in on Jamie's point about you know is she a central character is she an interesting character there's a really good piece written about women in Blade Runner by Helen Lewis in the New Statesman, and I'll send you the link. Um, and it's called Blade Runner. Is an uneasy feminist par- a parable, and in that, Helen Lewis goes through all of the major female characters and kind of discusses them. But Joy only really gets about one sentence, from what I can remember. Um, so obviously, for her as well, you know, Joy is not particularly an, an interesting character. Um, but yeah, but that was my feeling. I didn't I didn't pay a great deal of attention to her until other people started making her an interesting and problematic character.
0: Well, there's a question of selflessness. I wrote that down as we were talking, like oftentimes we think of parents, someone who's a parent is a very selfless role, but there's a there's a, a line for selflessness and and there's a, a, a part of self, selflessness that's an act of love where you are selfless because you want to, it's not about you, it's about this other person. And then that can be an act of love, but there can be selflessness that's like, well, what about you? Um, where it, it's it's too much. And I think my question is, is Joy's selflessness programmed or is it her own? And maybe that question doesn't matter. Maybe it doesn't matter at all. Um, and, but I, I end up questioning it. And I think I end up questioning it because technology can seduce us into all sorts of things. It can t- seduce us into buying something we don't need. It can seduce us into an argument that we probably shouldn't get into or whatever, like whether it's an algorithm, something's being presented on your Facebook page or on social media. Technology is seduct seductive. And I don't know with Joy whether it's authentic or whether her selflessness comes from love or her selflessness comes from programming. Um, but then I think what's interesting, and Micah, you've mentioned this before, I, I believe it was you, um, where you have Kay asking Joy, what do you want to do? He's very interested in her and what she wants. Where do you want to go? I'll take you anywhere you want to go. Um, that's the first question. He got the emanator not for him, but for her. Um, whereas, and I think he sees maybe her humanity. They're, they're kind of things born of the same manufacturer. And he sees her humanity and she see his, sees his. So it's an interesting dynamic there. And I don't know, I don't know if, k really loves her if he's just fascinated by her i don't, I can't read his performance that way but i think it's it's an interesting
2: dynamic i'd like to go back to something barbara mentioned and thank her for it because that was a really interesting perspective um when she basically countered the exact opposite of what i was saying which is you know i view joy through k's eyes and she views k through joy's eyes <clears throat> and i think uh obviously not being myself a woman of her generation. I'd never really thought about it from that perspective, meaning that I saw the fifties joy that comes in at the beginning or the sixties um, in terms of that sort of that perfect wife type character from back then that like cooks dinner and is dressed really nicely and is about you putting your feet up and relaxing and all that. And I never thought about the generation of women who were raised that way, regardless of whether that's what they wanted to do or not. Right. Which made me think of a point that, um, Timothy Shanahan brings up in his book, uh, philosophy and Blade Runner, which I'm reading for the second time right now, cause I'm going to interview him soon. And there's a chapter, uh, in dealing with personhood where he talks about sort of the difference between slavery and servitude and the moral issue of, so if you, breed a slave, for example, like in real life, like, like we did in America. Um, and you force that slave into whatever it is, you know, picking fruit or, uh, doing manual labor in a field, ostensibly that human doesn't really want to be doing that, right? That's a really hard life. They have, they have other aspirations, whether it be music or reading or, or whatever that they would like to discover. Um, But with replicants, and I think this extends to AI, the question becomes, is it immoral to create a being who has an inherent want to serve the particular function for which they are being created? So the way this relates to joy is, if joy indeed, being programming, so it's much more likely, has this inherent desire to please her master, uh, husband, um, whatever you want to call Kay in relation to joy, her client, I guess, um, is there really something wrong going on? Meaning that she doesn't have these, or ostensibly she doesn't have these aspirations of being her own woman and going to get her PhD and all these other things that women have struggled with, uh, in the U S and in other places and that it's still struggle with, especially in other countries, but in ours as well. Um, There's an interesting moral issue there um, because you're creating in some ways a simpler version of a person where you can ostensibly turn off those desires and and not create them in the first place. Where if her entire existence is about pleasing Kay, is there anything wrong with that in that particular context? It's very different from a little girl who's growing up in the US in, in the 50s or 60s, for example, and is being forced into a cultural um paradigm where the question is never being asked, is that what her desires are? Is that what she wants to do?
4: I was interested to, to hear you kind of raising the issue of 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 enslavement there. And actually as I was thinking about this podcast, I was thinking about the work of Hazel Carby, um, who is um she's in the Department of African American Studies, um, I think at Yale. And and what she does is she contrasts different kinds of families. Um, And and it's important in the sense of thinking about what is going on between Kay and what's going on between Joy in the context of the entire society. So what Hazel, Hazel Carvey argues is that enslaved families families of enslaved people are sites of resistance so within an enslaved family this is the place where resistance can be um, organized and where resistance you know where, where resistance to the the slave authorities can be can be organized whereas in free families because of the privileges which accrue to white men um those are places where white men are dominant and where patriarchy is dominant so i think the th- interesting thing about joy is the first time we see here this looks like a very patriarchal family in that Kay comes in, he's been at work all day and Joy looks like the 50s housewife. It looks very patriarchal. But as this film develops, we realize that actually they function much more like an enslaved family. That is to say that, that Kay and Joy become this site of resistance and they become an organised resistance to the rest of the power which is going on around them. So yeah, so thank you for mentioning the whole enslaved, not slaved thing. I, um, I think that's a really interesting way of looking at, the, at, at this dynamic
5: hopping back to something jamie brought up a while ago I just want to make two quick points there's a reason why when we read the giving tree by Shel silverstein which i'm assuming you guys have all read it doesn't come across like the massacre of like a, of a of just like a, a you know a tree <laughs> it's because like i think we recognize that at least in, in a lot of definitions of love i think sacrifice is kind of at the center of it and i know you know that i'm not telling you anything new i think that just because joy is sort of limited to operating within the context of sacrificing herself for this end user. The fact that she's doing it, the fact that she's fulfilling that goal, that role doesn't make it any less loving. And in, in my opinion, it's still totally part and parcel with who she is and what she's, what she believes in. And it's genuine to her character. And it's not like she's being forced to do it as opposed to as, as Barbara uh, and, uh, and Robin have both said, um, neander's relationship with love is completely different right because that's self-sacrifice in a way that she has no um control over and she's like deliberately kept as an object and as just basically a you know a a a gopher um there is this at least this appearance of choice in joy's part which may or may not be real but i guess the point is is that just like dan when, when you were talking about like the those those little um you know the cuddly things in old folks homes Like, I I don't think very many, even if they are senile and really old, I don't think very many people in that situation using that product think it's an actual seal. Like, the one that I remember seeing a video of on Reddit a while ago was this, like, adorable seal toy that um, doesn't look, and it's got fur, for one thing, and it doesn't look anything like an actual seal. It's very obviously, it's basically like an elongated Furby. I don't think that they're looking at it like it's a real thing, but I think it's fulfilling a real purpose, and I think that regardless of whether or not there's a reality to joy whether or not there is an actual personhood the appearance of it is so strong that it kind of doesn't matter for Kay and for her and for the narrative in general and i think there's something really um interesting about that the one other thing i want to say just to to bring it back because and just because we have this sort of contrasting opinion on this uh and micah has brought this up in the past so rachel there's a reason rachel looks the way she does right her features were selected she's a beautiful young woman who has dark hair and shiny lips and pale skin. And those are all selected features that presumably Tyrell Corp put together for her. Right. Um, and in assembling the way she looked, they also assembled the way she acted. They gave her certain traits, they gave her certain predispositions and she acted those out and, you know, and we see them kind of plunged in, into chaos when she's thrown into this existential crisis. But regardless, that existential crisis is still in the overriding context Of a lot of choices having been made for her before her initial incept date now with humans it's a totally separate argument because i don't you know then you have to talk about whether or not there's a creator and all that kind of shit which we're not going to get into for the purpose of this joy podcast but so so you can forget about humans and just talk about replicants and ai constructs like joy holograms with with an ai construct it's also, you know, just as we see in the beginning when, when she walks up to Kay and her little stat sheet comes up and, you know, we find out that she's slim build, has like a Cuban ethnicity, that she's five foot three. We find all these things out about her that he presumably selected when he, you know, bought her from, from Wallace Corp, you know. Um, and that's super unsettling, right? Like that feels really weird. But the reality is, is that Rachel is the same thing. Rachel was created according to certain dictates. And engineered as a product, right? So when Rachel gets thrown into this existential crisis of finding out that she's a replicant, we see in a lot of ways her actual, what we think of as humanity or as Dan beautifully said, personhood coming out. With Joy, I think that that moment of choice happens early on when she transfers to the Emanator. And we see who she is divorced from her initial purpose, which was basically just to be this in-home housewife subservient function. And She goes outside and she feels in a way that is not real but, but but poses a convincing simulacrum of reality what it feels like to get rain on your skin right and um, in a moment she kind of becomes as real as i think she kind of can be and in a lot of ways i i find like there i feel like there's a lot of uh, parallels between those two characters and i just and i know i know how rachel is at the center of your heart and it's just so interesting to me that that there's a divide for you and i'm assuming for many other people between Rachel and Joy, who were both were engineered for specific ends by men to fulfill a subservient role, and who both, in my opinion, supersede that, whether or not through their programming or through their deviance from their programming, in really beautiful and really, in my opinion, human ways.
0: I can totally understand that. In fact, I think that there's one thing that derailed me from Joy. And it's the moment she turned into a cell phone. That doesn't happen to Rachel. Um, The moment that Joy is put on pause because Kay has a phone call from his boss. And that moment to me is like, so this is just your phone walking around with you, telling you everything you want to hear, which is our phones do now. I mean, uh, the way... Things are created. We see what we want to see. We can tailor the news to, to you know, so we don't see certain news or we don't see if people, you know, if, if we don't like certain things, we can get rid of them or we can have them sleep or have them go away. And I think when Joy became a phone, when she became an answering service, uh, I just was like, I don't know what this thing is. And I'm not going to be seduced into believing that she's more than she is uh, because of this function right here. And it would be different if, if Rachel, and I think there's a little bit of, there's a difference with Rachel, whereas Rachel kind of lost her agency. Rachel just wanted to be loved. Joy hasn't gone, Joy doesn't, it seems like Joy doesn't care if she's loved or not. Joy only cares whether she, Kate knows that she loves him. Um, whereas Rachel, and even Rachel 2.0, they wanted to be loved for who they were. And uh, the first one was able to experience that, the second one wasn't. Um, And that's why that resonates with me. Joy, I just, I I don't know what she
1: is. I think Joy does want to be loved. And I think she shows it in in the way, and and maybe this is like a petty sort of um, example of how she shows that she wants to be loved. But he does take her, he takes her with him everywhere and she listens. And she shows that she wants to be loved and that um, when he's talking to Mariette, she makes her little ache don't you talk to that girl all right the little peter and the wolf flourish the wallace corporation one so i i don't think it's as obvious as it may be with Rachel that she sh- that that she shows that she wants to be loved but i i don't it it doesn't come across to me for whatever reason that it's a one sided thing for joy and i don't know why that is but it just i don't know it just does it doesn't come across that she doesn't want to be loved i think part of her dream is for them to have their love together, and in and she does her part by being who she needs to be to support him and and inspire him, and ultimately, to me, she becomes an example of heroism that Kay then emulates in what he ends up ends up choosing to do with regard to Deckard and going after him and saving him. So I think I think that she becomes a true hero for him and because of him. I think, I think they're both, they're connected so much in a way that um, K is not K without joy. And obviously joy is not joy without K just going back really briefly to what Patrick said about her um, specifications. um, I think it's so interesting that, I mean, it, it is unsettling that we see what, Kay probably chose her to be like but I'm so fascinated about why he chose those things I mean when we see the big pink like demon joy thing she doesn't have an accent um I wonder why he chose that accent I wonder why he chose these different modicums for her to um present herself as like sh- when she's in the little silvery dancy dress and she wants to be fun and say dance with me but then she changes back to the black for her sort of in my opinion her like default joy like casual self it's all just so interesting um the way she is able to visually show her um herself going through aspects of who she is to me at least but yeah
2: (laughs) and there's a lot we don't know about her in terms of uh, her creation and her assignment to k we don't know just like his apartment is probably a government issue thing for a cop essentially for a blade runner replicant Um, joy could have been assigned to him and made for him specifically. Um, in the same way we talked about, we don't know how subjective the baseline test is. Is it the same baseline test for all Nexus nines or is it specific to K in particular? Um, you know, joy being Cuban, for example, or five foot three or whatever, or a woman as opposed to a man, uh, may or may not have had, have been a result of K's input in the matter or not. We really don't know. Um, she could have been given to him like that and been made to like her, you know? Um, and one other quick point I wanted to make is, uh, going back to those kind of three characters, uh, K joy and love. I think, um, it's interesting to see how those characters emote and based on their societal, uh, restrictions, how they're allowed to emote. So Kay, very famously, Or very obviously is very muted, very unemotional for most of the movie, except for the couple of outbursts that he has of anger um, or where he shows some affection or a sense of humor. You know, little things here and there. Love, similarly, is in a very, very emotionally suppressed role, which we've talked about it briefly and we'll talk about it in a love episode later. But um, we've mentioned the points in which we see a tear running down her cheek and um, just like it does for a lot of humans uh, I I can't remember who brought up the point but I would agree with it that that tear is an expression of emotion uh, in the sense that it's she's suppressing her emotions for example when she's watching Wallace kill the newborn uh, replicant She's trying to be as still as possible and as unemotional as possible. And that's when you see that tear rolling down her cheek because that's the part of her emotions that she can't control, even though she's being forced to suppress it joy differently from those two characters has full ability and agency permission, whatever you want to call it to express her emotions as much as he, she wants. However, her emotions are programmed, restricted, and channeled to be all about K and all about her relationship with K. Um, although she doesn't have the same suppression um, method that the replicants do, which I find interesting.
3: You know, one thing that I found really interesting about the about her um, about Joy was that it. You know, she seems to be all sunshine and light, and you know, rah rah K, I'm all about you. But I loved that one moment where she looks at Marriott and says, I'm done with you. That jealousy you could see in her and the actress portrayed it. So the actor portrayed it so well, she looked so jealous. Like I wish that I could do what you just did. I wish that I could have done that, you know, that I could have been the one to, you know, physically be with the, the person that I love and, you know, them adding that, that, that little bit of, you know, some of your referred to it as a bit of cattiness, but that to me added this like really kind of a spicy dash to her character, you know, so I saw her more, a little bit more well-rounded, not so lopsided toward just, you know, being um, this, this um, program that's been, that's been developed and written to support Kay or whoever the person that she was assigned to but you could see you know there was a little more depth there i enjoyed that
0: there's one scene where uh joys in the car with or in the spinner with uh K and they're just heading off to trash mesa to the orphanage and i thought it was and i still think it was pretty amazing just you see joy cuz he says you want to take a ride and they're in there and they're Flying over the wall and you see the big ship and you just see the water pouring out. And it's really this amazing scene of wonder. And you see it in her eyes. And to me, that was a moment of, if she's just a program, she wouldn't wonder at these things. She wouldn't wonder at man's work because she wouldn't have to told me, it, it, it was the moment that I thought, okay, she's a little bit more than that because she wouldn't even care if she was just a program. This wouldn't seem new. She would already know about it. Um, nothing would seem new to, in, in terms of technology or the aesthetics of technology, but she was really like looking at the water, looking at the ship passing overhead, and it was the kind of wonder that we have as children or as as people when we go to other countries or we go to places we've never been before, and I thought it was a really, really, really great moment in the film with her.
1: Right, and it's like it's. I wonder if that is part of her programming, or if that is how Kay has kind of helped her grow. Like you know, like maybe only Kay's Joy would wonder at the wall, you know, and and the rain, and all of those things that she um, takes in so beautifully. Um, just going back really briefly to what Barbara was talking about about that little caddy moment between Mariette and Joy, I was also um, wanted to just point out that. That is one of the only times that we see Joy without Kay in the room. And it's interesting that she kind of shows her strength a little bit, saying, like, okay, you can leave, like, I'm done with you. And there is that interesting moment of her showing that she's got a backbone and she's got a little bit of strength, that she can control her situation. Um, And Kay is not even in the room, so she's not really doing that for him. She's just—it—it it seems to me—it's just interesting. I wish we had more moments where we could see joy without Kay. Like she's showing to dominance to her, right?
0: And, right. And what's is interesting—it's—it's it's almost a. a uh, you, th- there was an earlier scene where Mariette is talking to Kay in the food court, and she hears Joy's thing, and she goes, "Oh, you don't like real girls." Almost like there's a this hierarchy amongst. These manufactured things, where well we're real and you're not, um, and then Joy flips that on its head, saying, "No, this is my space. You leave." Um, so it, it, it's an interesting. It's interesting to see how, of course, Kate doesn't act that way, um, but it's interesting to see that animosity or that 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 hierarchy amongst uh, things manufactured by the Wallace Corporation, kind of take place
5: also you know like there's that that old adage of um, man is the only animal that blushes right like that that our personhood is somehow wrapped up in our ability to be jealous or feel embarrassed or you know that kind of thing um, and I think it's interesting that as Micah has said the only time we see Joy unobserved by her end user is when she's acting in, in a very human way which is being jealous
4: there is one other moment that strikes me where Joy says something which Kay doesn't like or I'm probably over-egging this particular pudding, if you'll forgive the metaphor, Um, but it's to do with Nabokov's book, Um, Pale Fire. Because one of the first things she says to Kay when he walks in uh, after his day is, do you want to read this book? And Kay says, I know you hate that book. And she acknowledges she hates that book. So there is a difference between, there is a point where Joy and Kay do not quite connect and it's over the book. And, of course, the book's really important because the book is about fictional characters and about what is real. and The whole book is about what is real and what's not real. So there's an indication there that Joy is aware that, in some sense, she isn't real. And she, and this book is a constant reminder to her of that. And that's why there's this one area where she hates something, the book, which Kay loves.
2: And, of course, the right, book that- is the source of the... Um, the uh, oh, man, someone help me. I'm blanking right now. The uh, baseline baseline test. test. <clears throat> right. Which we've talked about before in the K episode, whether whether it is K's baseline test or the Nexus 9 baseline test or every replicants uh, baseline test. But um, yeah, the, Robin, you've read the book.
4: I have. Well, at least I've read, um, my goodness, it's a long time ago and I can only remember bits of it. Um, But yes, I have a long time ago. But my feeling is that that can't be every replicant's baseline test simply because they can't possibly have enough copies of the book. Um, If you see what I mean. So my hunch is every replicant has a mantra that they say and that mantra is taken from somewhere. Kay just so happens to have taken it from Nabokov for whatever reason.
2: Into Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you long for having your heart interlinked? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you dream about being interlinked? Interlinked. What's it like to hold your child in your arms? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you feel that there's a part of you that's missing? It's
1: interesting that she hates the book that from which his baseline test comes from. Now, whether or not she knows that his baseline test comes from that is, I mean, we'll never know. But um, yeah, I was just going to bring up the same thing that you brought up, Dan.
2: Interesting, yeah, and and now that I think of some of the lines from the baseline test, which Barbara, if you truly do have this memorized, maybe you can help me out. But um, I remember some of the questions from it, right? Uh, In terms of like, do you do you long to hold a child in your arms, or you know, there there are questions that have to do with being a real person. And although Kay isn't answering those questions, to me, the theme seems to be that no. He's not supposed to feel that way, which is part of what makes him constant K and makes him not have emotion and not respond uh, viscerally in those ways. Whereas, again, you see joy to a certain extent within her construct do that more. You guys spoke about jealousy, for example, which is a um, a very visceral and difficult to control emotion.
5: And and just a, a quick aside on the baseline test, just my personal opinion on it is the is the reason why they both hate the book is probably because he's been memorizing passages from it, knowing that it's his baseline test and he has to be well acquainted with it because he's gonna cause the whole idea with the baseline test, right, is to to throw non sequiturs into the text that can throw him off emotionally so that he'll have to like get distracted and react to it. So he probably like whiffs that out on a nightly basis and practices passages from it so that he can be prepared for that so that i think that's that's why that's the only visible book in there
3: yeah the 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 baseline test is it's it's this strange to me not only is he supposed to um not have an emotional response but also some of the questions are almost taunting you know things that he never had never will have uh and that he's he's supposed to not have an emotional reaction to this taunting it's just it's very visceral.
4: One of the particular lines, the taunting lines in the baseline test is if you ever wanted to know what it's like to touch finger to finger. And of course, that's the one thing he can't do with Joy. He, there's no way he can ever touch her finger to finger or, you know, any, in any other sense. So it, it, there, it seems to be a particular, you know, knife in his heart, that particular line, or at least that, that's the way it struck me. It's yeah, almost you see a lot of that.
2: Going in his head during the sinking scene. There's a lot of hands in that scene, which I find hands to be a theme in Blade Runner in general. Many, many characters uh, look at their hands. Um, Roy has a lot of scenes. He puts the nail through his hand. Um, Kay looks at his hand several times. One that comes to mind is when he sticks it into the beehive and pulls it out and is looking at the bees on his hand. Um, but Joy, as we spoke about earlier, does it in the rain. Um, and is supposedly getting the inputs of feeling rain on her hands. And then again, in the sinking scene, there's three different sets of hands there. Uh, Of course, the two women's hands, or the two female characters' hands, moving around and kind of following one another. Um, And so I'm I'm sure that was very active in Kay's mind, uh, where, of course, he was feeling a pair of hands. They just weren't Joy's.
5: And of course, like as we as we've alluded to in past episodes, and as we will get to more in our eventual water episode that we keep that we keep teasing, um, you know, water is of course in just classical literature a baptismal metaphor, and uh, and I think in the world of Blade Runner, it's used very similarly. And so I think the moment of sort of transfiguration where she becomes more than her programming, in my opinion, is when she gets baptized
0: in water, essentially. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought about that.
3: Well, you know, also we all came from water. We are, you know, ultimately, you know. I mean, look at Medulla um, Bjork's album. Which is one song, all about, you know, M- mother nature being this water creature. We, you know, this sort of like, you know, the Wallace Corporation is creating life, and here he is sitting in this room that's nothing but a gigantic pool. Um, to me, that was pretty interesting because, you know. Uh, we're talking about, you know, beings that we're not evolved, but created. And yet we're surround. you know, he's surrounded by something that shows that, you know, how we evolved. It's pretty cool.
0: Joy also seems to me, because Kay isn't an emotional creature, joy is every emotion he wants to feel. So she feels it because he can't. And as we've all been talking, I'm just thinking his reaction to Mariette she puts his hand on him when she when they're at the food court and he kind of takes it away because his baseline tells him to. You shouldn't want that. You shouldn't want anything real because joy is enough for you. Um, how does it feel finger to finger? He doesn't know. He shouldn't want to know. And so when he gets that feeling, like even when Mariette comes to the house and joy is sinking with him, it's very uncomfortable for him because he feels like he shouldn't be experiencing this. Um, that joy, this two-dimensional one-dimensional, uh, in terms of her body, whatever, the space she takes up in, up in in his house, that's kind of what he's been taught, is that's good enough for you. Um, and he doesn't know what it feels like finger to finger because Joy can't do that. But it's, it's okay because he doesn't need that. Joy is enough. So he's, and I think probably that's my issue with him is that he settled for Joy when he could have Mariette, when he, he could have something real. Um, it, it, but it's interesting that, that I feel like she is his emotions. She is the emotions that we want him to feel. When he's discovered that 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 horse, she is crying. He should be crying, but she is instead.
2: Sure, and we're getting into also the definition, which of course in a bigger scheme of things we don't have time to get into, but the de- definition of what is real. You mentioned Mariette being more real and something he should want. At the same time, Mariette's a prostitute. She got paid to be there and be involved with Kay and then to leave, right? So like how real is that? It depends on what you're talking about. Yeah. It's, physic- it's physically very real, but it's not emotionally very real. At least at the time of that scene, it's easy to imagine that Mariette doesn't have any emotional attachment to Kay. She's, he's just a customer to her. Yeah. In, in some kind of way, Joy was able to pay her and hired her for that job. Whereas while he can't touch Joy, she's emotionally much more real or at least becomes emotionally much more real for him. I think the scene where Joy is uh, – her emanator is crushed by love, you can see the emotional pain in Kay's face. He's suffering from physical pain at the time as well, but he really feels that loss. And you can see the numbness that overcomes him for the rest of the movie as he deals with the loss of Joy Um, which is part of what makes him connect very strongly to Deckard, uh, in, in, in a lot of, there's lots of other reasons why he connects strongly with Deckard. But I think that, um, yeah, joy was able to add a lot to his life that was very real. And again, even the scene where she does hire Mariette and sync with her and have this love scene or sex scene, uh, or experience with Kay, that was her initiative doesn't there is no indication that he started that process it seems pretty obvious that she did that on her own yeah so uh, I mean, if anything
5: he's uncomfortable with it at first
2: right and just like everything else about her is programming it is something that like wow look what she brought into his life of her own volition it's interesting
5: and just just two just very quick things i know we're running out of time and, and i want to hear more from barbara and robin before we close out but just very briefly um not only is mariette a prostitute, but she was also specifically engineered to be a prostitute, right? She's a love model replicant. So, so not only is she there in this sort of vacuous emotional capacity where she's just a physical thing, but she's also a physical thing that was created for that purpose. Right. So in a lot of ways, she's so far removed. And so to me, if there's something just uh, so strange when she says you don't like real girls, because like, who's to say that she's the real one in that situation. Right. Which is right. why I think joy is such an interesting character just in an emotional way as well. Um, The other thing just briefly on the sinking scene is I think that that is a moment. There's a couple of moments where joy acts in ways that at least according to the tropes of science fiction that we've been been presented with in most popular literature and films to date, um, she acts in ways that are atypical for that. And that seem to, to go against what we expect out of a created technological character. So she not only, willingly sacrifices herself, right? by making herself vulnerable by going into the emanator and then by escaping the emanator to save to try to save his life at the end of at the of her existence in the movie, right? Which of course leads to her downfall. And she knows that because she willingly made herself vulnerable and put herself in the position where if she did something like that, she would no longer exist as a sentience if she is sentient in the first place, but or as a program. She would no longer be a program. Um, but the other moment, though, is the sinking scene. Because she does something that is that should be impossible, right? She was not created to have physical intimacy with anybody. And she finds a way through her own, I would imagine, her own either program, you know problem solving or programming, and that's a separate argument, to make it as close to real as possible by hiring basically a tool, meaning this replicant prostitute who, as we you know, th- from the real girl exchange, know, is in terms of the social hierarchy above her she actually uses this this you know superior hierarchical thing to physicalize her relationship in a way that allows her to transcend the boundaries of her programming so she not only does she, so she starts off as a housewife right tied to a literal tether on the on the roof of a small cell block in an apartment building She separates from that by going into the emanator, willingly making herself vulnerable. She feels the weather and reacts to it, meaning that she's sort of baptized in the waters of life in a way. Um, She willingly leaves that building to go with him on a trip and experiences joy and awe and wonder, just like a child would upon leaving his or her house for the first time. Uh, She makes herself vulnerable and sacrificing herself in the name of this end user who she evinces, in my opinion, every – um, possible aspect of loving, like I think she really appears to love him. Whether she does or she doesn't is a separate argument that I know we can't, we can never really quite get to the end of. And she also becomes something that she's not. Instead of becoming, instead of being relegated to being just the appearance of a real person, she does in a meaningful way, using a tool in a very human way, uh, become a physicalized person, so that. She can do something loving for the end user that she is in love with. And as a result of that, in the absence of that end user acts in a very human, jealous way and tells the tool who, again, hierarchically speaking, is a buffer on the totem pole, tells the tool to leave and says, I don't need you anymore. So to me, the, the, from, from her, her, her voyage from being a tethered housewife to being somebody who would kill themselves in the name of love is a, is a hugely human transformation.
4: Is real. I want to be real for you.
2: You are real for me.
3: You're a special lady here. Okay, let's do it. You know, I love the way you describe it as a voyage because that is exactly what she's done. She has gone from being this, um, you know, fettered creature that is literally chained to a device on a ceiling to being very autonomous and able to travel and listen and be more deeply participating in being a person, you know, being out of her original environment. And I do wonder um, kind of on a, kind of a more of a nerdy note, if, you know, um, inside the, the house with that device, um, there was no need for any software to be written to have her, interact with rain so i mean the Avenator seems to me to be a pretty powerful device to be able to probably enhance her programming so that while she is outside she can experience things like rain so it's pretty interesting to me
0: well i think uh we've talked for almost two hours and i think that we could probably talk for another two hours if we wanted to just because there's so much to it but uh, i i thought maybe we could just kind of wrap up this episode we could just go around and like end it with a moment with joy or uh, an interaction maybe with K or joy, whatever that sticks with you. I know we've talked about a lot, but it would just be interesting to hear uh, all of our moments. And I've shared mine already, so I won't. um, But a a moment with joy that that you think about on a a semi-regular basis. Let's start with you, Micah.
1: Oh, man. (laughs) Let me see. Um, I like... Let me see. I mean there's there there's many moments that I really love with Joy. Um I think uh I love the moment when she uh, on like the heart most heartbreaking moment obviously is when her right before her emanator is crushed and she begins to say, I love you. Um but I I always like to juxtapose that moment um and the moment where she gives Kay his name Joe with the moment where he confronts the, the giant, I always call her like demon joy. Um, and she says, you look like a good Joe because I think those two moments when when, when Kay's Joe says, I love you. And before when she is, she gives him his name, it, it, when, when he meets that other joy that wasn't his, who also calls him Joe, I feel like that is such an emotional, like hammer. It always hits me really hard about how, K must be so completely heartbroken so that's that's a moment those moments strung together are um, some that I think about often about joy
3: I was going to use that exact example the, and, and the look the look on Kay's face when the when the giant demon joy calls him Joe that look on his face of that quiet painful acceptance that he really all along knew exactly what joy was and what she meant to him and that he loved her and accepted her anyway you know and um, part of the problem with, I think, the, you know, with these constructs is that they gain acceptance and elevation through the way other, maybe more, I guess, real, when we're debating what really is real, um, people or characters, you know, how they elevate them. And um, I don't know, it just, I, I literally cried. I cry easily, but I was sitting weeping
1: when I saw that scene. Me too.
2: Dan, how about you? Well, uh, in an unusual twist, I will avoid the opportunity of trying to come up with like a concise paragraph where which sums up, you know, or a scene that sums up the entire meaning of joy for me, but I'll actually respond more to what's been mentioned a couple of times. I've never heard, um, the description of the giant joy hologram described as demon joy, which is obviously a reference to the fact that her eyes are completely black. She doesn't have pupils or irises or any of the divisions that our eyes normally have. It's like a shark.
1: Is, it's thank you, line.
2: Patrick. That's exactly actually how I would have referred to it. What it made me think of is a great white shark, which especially in the moments where it's kind of pulling its lips back and about to chomp onto something, um, it's eyes are like completely black and kind of glazed over. And what that makes me think of, and I don't know if this is intentional by the filmmakers, but now it makes that moment really, really sit with me because a shark is sort of the evolutionary example, right. Of apex predator programming, right. All a shark does, unless it's reproducing is swim around and look for things to kill and eat. Um, and so I think that's, partially what that eye design is supposed to do is remind you that joy is devoid of her own actual emotions. And she's a hundred percent programming. I just thought that was an interesting visual that I hadn't thought about until now. Robin,
4: I'm torn. I'm torn. Um, my initial thought was, yeah, the moment joy, the moment which joy dies is just, it's incredibly compelling. Um, because it's a real emotional hit and it's the point at which love and joy come face to face, so to speak. Um, So yeah, so there's an awful lot to be said for that scene. I think the other scene, which affected me enormously in the movie theater the first few times i saw it was um the love scene or the sex scene or whatever we want to call it and i'm never quite sure what 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 terminology to use for that um because for me it kind of summarizes what i think the world of 2049 is um, which is this kind of incredible dystopia where human life has, in the kind of broader sense, including Kay's life, has kind of broken down. And the market and technology are stepping in to fill the gaps which, you know, normal human interactions would normally um, fill. So we have the market, the sex worker, and the market providing the technological solution to Kay's kind of needs. And it's, it's an incredible scene because it's both it's, it's enormously perplexing and morally ambiguous and enormously beautiful. And I think all of that is captured in the music, um, you know, because in the sense that music really can capture those complexities in a way that other kinds of forms can't. So yeah, so I think it's an incredibly affecting and very powerful scene.
5: Well, but I guess before I get my final point, I just want to, you know, thank everybody. This has been such an interesting and and really wonderful varied conversation that I, I'm, probably never going to forget about it i'll be thinking about this for a long time it's been a really great episode um so thank you all for coming on um my moment would be when Kay breaks the antenna because to me it's the clearest indication that what they have is something that is at least as convincing a facsimile as possible of true love because by that point in the movie we have every indication that any kind of exposition can give us that they are in some sort of a committed loving situation and that they do feel for each other and we've already had Joy willfully make herself more vulnerable, right, by going into the emanator, and then ask that she be made more vulnerable, ask that she be put in danger to go with him, right? And then we have him make this decision that, to me, feels very much like the—well, like the, it's not a decision, but the, the moment when you basically realize that love is the most important thing in your life, and it's what you're going to cut the rope and pursue— and you're going to take the chance, and you're going to risk it, knowing that heartbreak is a very real thing, and knowing that you could love somebody more than the sun and the moon, but they could die, and you could be left profoundly heartbroken. Knowing that love also brings loss, and still taking that risk, still cutting the rope, still jumping down the mountainside, to me, that's a moment where he decides to truly give in to love with her. And, uh, and, and I think it's, it's another Chekhov's gun scenario. Like, you know, that she's not going to make it back from this trip. And I think that the fact that they both choose that shows that they have what is at least as true as possible. Love can be between a hologram and a replicant. And I think in a lot of ways, it's an extremely human moment full of personhood and full of wonder and beauty and narrative resonance. And, um, I think it's at the heart of what blade runner blade runner is, which as we talked about in our anniversary episode, blade runner is about what it means to be us, you know? And I think that that's maybe the most profound evocation of it that I've seen since 2019.
0: I'd say that's a good way to end it. So I, I kind of want to continue talking. I don't feel like we're done, but I think we are done for a while, but I want to thank Robert for coming on. I know it was kind of last minute. We've interacted quite a bit on social media and I thought like, you were the right one and you were. So thank you for coming on. Robin,
4: I, hey, thank you I, I for know it's so
0: late and or early for you. Thank you so much. Hey,
4: can I just say, we've got the dawn chorus has just started over here in England. So, you know, so it's officially tomorrow as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. So it was, it was a great way to spend the, the you know, the, the period between the two days with you people. So thank you for inviting me on. Thank yeah, you. Thank, thank you for Rob.
0: coming on. And Micah, thank you as always. You're awesome.
1: Aw, thanks guys. Love to be here.
0: Stop. I do hope you're satisfied
5: with our product. I love you.